Can you hear me now? Testing, testing, yeah? Can you hear me? Yeah? Good, thank you. It's very good to be with you again this evening. We consider God's word this evening in 1 Samuel 16. And yes, I suppose there is a bit of a theme uh, going on from the previous sermon a couple weeks ago, as we hope to see from God's word tonight. So let us read 1 Samuel 16. Hear the word of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh, the better David, the true anointed one. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, 
who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a, young, uh, took a donkey laden with bread and, and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And this is the word that I may preach to you. If you're familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, you'll remember how it says in Lord's Day 44 that even the holiest have only a small beginning of the righteousness and the obedience that God requires of us. And here in our text, we have a clear example of this. Samuel, a man whom we would consider one of the holiest of God's children, a great servant of God, a faithful servant of God, needed to learn something that we all need to learn. As Jesus once said, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. God looks at the heart, and that determines what his judgment will be. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, then we must admit that we generally come to judgments by looking at the outward appearance, don't we? If we're truly honest. This is partly, of course, because we cannot see the heart as God can. We cannot see into people's minds, into people's souls the way Jesus can. That's true. God knows all people. He knows what's in everyone's heart. We don't. At the same time, however, this doesn't mean that we're unable to discover what, what is in the heart of others. Although we are not God, that doesn't mean that we are only able to judge by outward appearances, by what we see. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't expect us to stop judging by mere appearances. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told us to stop judging by just what we see. So God's word comes to us this evening with this question. Do you and I see what God sees? At the very least, are you and I looking for what God looks for and what God wants to see? The last chapter ended by telling us that Samuel mourned for Saul. A lot has happened since the, the time Saul has been anointed, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. There's quite a, a, a number of years that has elapsed. We don't know exactly how many years, but a number of years have elapsed. Remember from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at 1 Samuel 9, when God, gave, when God gave Israel the king they had been craving for, 
the king they had been whining for. They wanted a king because they wanted to mingle with the nations around them. They wanted to be like the other nations. So God said, okay, here you go. And it's not that, again, like we saw last time, it's not that God didn't want them to have a king. He did, eventually, that was his will. But it was the kind of king that they wanted that was the problem. Well, in the meantime, Samuel, God's prophet, had spent considerable time and energy advising and counseling Saul, his adopted son. Saul, who would, as God's anointed king, was to look to his father prophet Samuel for guidance, for wisdom, and who was to follow God's instructions through him. So we can understand how, how sad Samuel must have been. Samuel wasn't just mourning for, for his own sake, but he was mourning for, for God's sake and for Israel's sake. What has happened? Why has, it, why has Saul not listened to the Lord? Samuel must have feared the disintegration of God's people even further. In fact, we're told in chapter 15, verse 10, that Samuel was, was actually downright angry about Saul and God's decision to take him from, from the throne. When God told him this, he, he was so angry, we're told there in chapter 15, verse 10, that he didn't sleep. And he spent the whole night in anger, crying out to God, Why, Lord, why? You know, sometimes we idealize and even idolize men of God like Samuel. But here's a reminder that Samuel too, like every man, even holy men and women, was a mere human. And that God had to admonish him. God had to admonish his prophet and bring him back to his senses. So Yahweh tells Samuel to stop grieving. No more crying about Saul. This is my will. From a purely human perspective, things looked bleak. But God didn't want His servant to linger on the past. God was, was about to do something new and, and good. And even though Samuel couldn't see it at the moment. We have the reader's edge again. We know what's going to happen, but Saul had no way of knowing at that point. But he had to trust that what God was doing was good and that God would do something new for His people. That's really a theme throughout the book of First and Second Samuel. And really, it's a theme throughout all of Scripture, actually. And that is that God makes our helplessness His starting point. Have you experienced that in your own life? I hope you have. I certainly have. Sometimes in those moments when we feel the most helpless, when we feel we don't know what's next, we don't know what step to take next, that we 
come to recognize how much we need God and His grace. God makes our helplessness His starting point. He does a new thing when we are at a loss. And so it is here. Samuel is, is certainly reluctant, being the human, being the mere human that he is. He's somewhat reluctant to do what God has told him to do, but he is, he is a faithful prophet, so he will do it, as we'll see. But being a human, Samuel is also realistic about Saul, and about his character and, and his temperament. He knows that Saul has a short temper. He, his, his fuse is easily lit. And you don't step on Saul's toes. If you know the previous chapters, you'll know how, how Saul had lost his temper even on his own son, Jonathan. Remember how he, he even threatened to kill his own son for unknowingly going against his father's vow? His father had made a vow that anyone who ate any food that day of this very important battle, that person would die. What a foolish vow to make. But even, even though it was a foolish vow, he was determined to stick on it. He was bent on killing Jonathan, his own son. That's how wicked of a temper he was in. But God, by His grace, restrained Saul through His people. He said, Saul, how can you do such a, a crazy thing? So Samuel knew he, who he was dealing with, probably better than anyone else. And again, it's not that Samuel was unwilling to do what God had told him to do. Yet Samuel places his difficulties before God for a solution. What, what if he wants to kill me, Lord? And in this, Samuel acted wisely. God doesn't expect us to blindly obey him without laying before him our worries and concerns, even our fears and even our anger. We're even allowed to place all those intense emotions before God. Say, Lord, what now? God takes into mind who we are. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we are but human, that we don't have his mind. And he also remembers that for his servants, his holy servants. Yes, we do need to obey him, but we may also lay before him our concerns about what our obedience will require of us, what the cost of our obedience might be. And that's what Samuel does. And as a result, God allows Samuel to carry out God's instructions under a cover. In fact, he provides Samuel with the cover. He says, okay, Samuel, you're worried about Saul killing you. Just tell him that you're coming to bring a sacrifice. How can he argue with that? So God tells Samuel to say, 
I've come to bring a sacrifice. And besides, it was totally appropriate that there should be a sacrificial meal along with David's anointing, just as there had been with Saul and with, with, with his anointing, as we saw back in chapter 9. Notice the contrast between Saul and Samuel. Saul was in the habit of picking and choosing which instructions of Yahweh to listen to. But not Samuel. Saul would follow God's instructions if he thought those instructions were reasonable, but if he didn't agree with them, he would do something different. As you can see in those intervening chapters from chapters chapters 10 through 15. When, for example, when Saul, when Samuel had told Saul, you have to wait before I arrive to make the sacrifice, Saul just ignored him. Thought he knew better. But not Samuel. Samuel follows the instructions that the Lord gives him. Look at what we're told in verse 4 and 5. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? They knew that something was up. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. He did exactly what God told him to do even though he had questions about it, even though it made him uneasy. And that's what God calls us to as his servants. You don't have to be a prophet or a holy man of God to follow just exactly what God tells you to do. He always knows best. He made you. He made me. He made this world. He, has, he knows all things. He knows your past. He, he knows the present. He knows the future. He's got it all laid out. And all we have to do is, is listen and obey and trust the results to Him. The Lord had already chosen which son of Jesse would become the next king of Israel. We know that from the end of verse 1. Good thing, because as soon as Samuel saw Eliab, he thought he would be the one. Again, sometimes the holy men of God get it wrong. And in this case, Samuel was wrong. He admonishes Samuel for thinking this. Look at verse 7. He says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We can understand that Samuel thought this way, being under all the stress that he was under at the time. He sees alive, he thinks, yeah, he must be the one. But no, Samuel's choice was based entirely on what he saw, on what Eliab looked like. In that respect, how did Samuel know that Eliab was going to be any different from Saul? We saw that last time, didn't we? 
Saul too had an attractive personality. He was, he was taller than everyone. He stuck out in a crowd. How humbling that must have been for Samuel. Samuel himself had warned and chastised, chastised God's people about the choice they had made in wanting a king like the other nations, a king who was outwardly impressive. And now Samuel too must be admonished. Indeed, even the holiest have only a small beginning. God's declaration in verse 7 remains central in God's choice of kings in the future. God judges Absalom. Remember, Absalom too is described in the Bible as a handsome man. Wasn't God's choice for a king. Adonijah too. Humanly speaking, a great candidate, not God's choice. They were handsome and impressive men, but they did not have what it would take to be king of God's people. They were severely lacking by God's standards. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that, that outward appearance doesn't matter to God. If that was the case, the, the Holy Spirit wouldn't tell us the details He tells us here in 1 Samuel 16. You probably noticed that, that when David is brought before Samuel, it is mentioned that he too is a good-looking guy. He's a man of fine appearance and handsome features, beautiful eyes, and so on. But that was not the main reason God chose him. For God looks upon the heart in the first place. No one else had thought of David. Not even Jesse, his own father. Otherwise, Jesse would have called David earlier. Do you and I see what God sees? To ask even a more fundamental question, one that has eternal consequences. Do you see Jesus? We believe that Jesus is proclaimed in all of Scriptures. Jesus said that about Himself. All the Scriptures speak of Me. Jesus said on the road to Emmaus. And also 1 Samuel 16. Jesus himself was unimpressive by human standards. The Bible tells us. He was unimpressive to those who judge by mere appearances. Consider how people viewed Jesus. They said, for example, we know from Mark 6, verse 3, He's just one of us. Isn't He the son of, the, of that carpenter guy named Joseph? from the same town as we are? Why should we listen to him? Other people said, Matthew eleven eighteen, he has too much fun, this Jesus fellow, and he spends a little bit too much time with tax collectors and sinners, those, those street women. 
other people said, he's from the wrong town. John 7, verse 41. Others said, Messiah? We're looking for a Messiah that doesn't suffer. He can't even save himself, let alone the nation of Israel. Matthew 27, as he hung on the cross. Psalm 118. He was the stone the builders rejected. Do you see Jesus? Do I see Jesus? Or do we fail to see Him? And do we fail to see His work because we place so much stock in human appearances? Like we read Earlier in Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a a root out of dry ground. Who pays any attention to a root out of dry ground except to not stumble over it? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is something for us to remember in all our judging. When reaching or making judgments about people, as we prayed about earlier, how do we view our our brothers and sisters in the church, or for, for that matter, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our co-worker, that person that stumbles across the crosswalk downtown, totally out of his or her mind. How do we judge? In ourselves, we lack the discernment we need. And Yahweh alone is fit to guide us in reaching such judgments. Yahweh, our God, defies all expectations, even the expectations of Jesse, the father of all these boys, who who of all people should have known the best. Look what we read in in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Oh, uh, there remains yet the youngest, my youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. 
hadn't even come to Jesse's mind to have David there. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. As it turns out, the smallest one, the youngest boy of the family, was chosen. The farmer boy, the boy with dirt under his fingernails, the shepherd boy who smelled of the outdoors and of stinky animals. God chooses to use the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. God chooses the small boy to shame the grown-up boys. He chooses the baby brother who isn't even around, nowhere to be seen, because he's just taking care of the sheep. He chooses the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Let's not be surprised at God's choices. And that let's not look at others with merely human eyes. About David then, the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him. He is the one. Verse 12. God didn't only have David anointed though, He also had David equipped for his office, for his new role. The Spirit of God, we're told in verse 13, came upon David in power. Magnificent thing that happens here. Verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, remember the same thing that happened with Saul. The Spirit of God had also rushed upon Saul back in chapter 9, as we saw. The difference seems to be, however, that the Spirit of God remained upon David David did not grieve the Spirit the way Saul had, as we're told in the next verse, verse 14. There we're told that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Yes, the Holy Spirit came upon David in power, all right. But we have the reader's edge. We know the rest of David's story. If we know our Bibles and read the story if you haven't yet, or read it again if you haven't read it for a while. You know how David's life went from that point on. Was it great? Was it wonderful? It was very difficult. David, the man with the spirit, will be hunted and betrayed. David, the man with the Spirit, will be trapped and a fugitive. He will go into hiding in caves and he will go into exile in enemy territory. He will be driven to the edge. Literally. It's, it's almost as, as if when the Spirit comes, that's when the trouble begins. 
I don't mean to sound depressing, but this is what Scripture teaches us. And of course, there is good news here, as we'll see. But isn't it true that we sometimes think that when the trouble begins, it's evidence that the devil has taken hold of us or that the devil is attacking us. It must be Satan doing something wicked. And sometimes, of course, that is the case. Often it is the case. But then we should also remember that it's equally true that the trouble begins when the Holy Spirit has taken hold of us. So it was also for our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in Mark 1. What happened when the Spirit came upon Him? He was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted for 48 days. That's when his, his real suffering began. No sooner does the Spirit come upon him and the trouble begins. And so it is with all who follow Christ. Remember how the apostles told the early church during a period of intense persecution, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And, and you see why it's so important for us to understand this, is that so often what is taught in Christian circles and from Christian pulpits is that life will be good when you walk with God. When you give your life to Jesus, everything will be good. That's when the blessings will flow upon you. Of course, we know that we are blessed when we turn to Christ. But we also need to remember that it is through many, through much suffering that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't think that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, everything is going to be sunshine and roses. Be prepared for the opposite. Oh yes, the Holy Spirit will, will keep you strong and He will give you courage. That is the good news. And in the end, you will win the victory. You will have eternal salvation. You will be filled with all the blessings of the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth. But we're still on the way there. When the Spirit comes upon you with power, He will also put you on the front lines of battle against the evil one. Before we see David as a warrior or a general or a king, however, we see him as a musician. Notice what we're told in the rest of 1 Samuel 16. Before David goes to battle with the spiritual forces of darkness, with his slingshot and his sword, he goes to battle with his lyre and his lips in music and in song. And this wasn't merely Saul's choice. It wasn't just because Saul wanted him as his musician. It was God's choice. By putting David in the service of King Saul, God was preparing David for his future kingship. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth 
sings. You see, it is not only the outward appearance by which human beings are left to judge. Jesse, the father of David, could have known that David was a man after God's own heart, eminently qualified to be chosen as king if he had only listened to him sing. David's singing provided a glimpse of his heart. Notice what David's singing does. We're told in verse 23 that it suppresses the evil spirit that God had sent upon Saul. Verse 23, And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Again and again, by the mercy of God, Satan was banished from Saul. Although God had sent this evil spirit upon Saul, in his mercy he was allowing Saul to find relief from that evil spirit. He was giving him reason to repent. And God was not merely doing that, that for Saul's sake. He was also doing it for his people's sake. God did not want to give Satan so much power over Saul that things in Israel would become totally chaotic. If Saul would act out on all, on everything that made him angry, how much blood would not be shed? How many more people he would kill if he had a chance? If he would even do that to his own son, Jonathan. By his spirit which rested on David, God restrained the wickedness in Saul's heart for the sake of his people. Yes, David went to battle with his lyre and his lips in song before he went to battle with his sling and sword. In fact, through David's music, God himself was doing battle with Satan. God ordained praise from the lips of David to use the words of Psalm 8 because of his enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Do you hear that? That's what God continues to do also through your songs, through my songs, the songs that we're singing here tonight as the people of God. God is doing battle with those against Satan himself. Let's not think that the battle against sin starts the moment you leave the church service. Oh no. It begins here. As we worship with the angels of heaven, the mighty ones, the mighty warriors who do God's bidding. It starts here as we sing. We do battle against Satan and his demons. We're doing battle against the evil one whenever we are singing the praises of God. So sing often. Also in your hearts. As you do battle with the evil one. 
Singing David was a salt to Saul, a mercy preventing him and his people from total self-destruction. And the singing church likewise is a salt to the world, a mercy preventing the world from complete decay. The church is annoyed with our singing. That's okay. Because something else is going on. Through the singing and worshiping church, God is still restraining Satan and the evil spirit that God has sent upon the world in judgment. We should expect the world to recoil. Then we know something is working right. With her praises and her songs and worship, the church causes the evil one to retreat. Do you want to get rid of the devil? Do you want to resist Satan? And sing the praises of your God. Are you tempted by something that you see or something that you're ready to say in anger or something that you're ready to do but you know is wrong? Make a song in your heart to God and the devil will flee. And remember that it isn't merely David who leads you in the battle of song, ensuring your victory, but that Christ himself is leading you. Christ, your Savior, the Anointed One, the One who died for you and rose for you, the anointed one upon whom the Spirit came in, in power unlike any other. He leads you. Like it says in Hebrews 2 verse 13, Behold, I and the children God has given me. That's what, that's what Jesus does every time we worship, every time we call upon God, every time we sing to God. Jesus pleads with us before the, the Father and says, here they are, your children. And he leads us into victory as we join him in worship. So don't be fooled by outward appearances. Don't be fooled into judging the church the way the world does. It really doesn't matter what the world thinks. Merely by outward appearance. Don't be fooled by how others judge you. Or how you might judge others. Remember that God looks upon the heart. Remember that God listens to the praise and the songs that flow from your heart, from your mouth, that flow from the heart of the worshiping church, his bride, which he bought with his blood, and with whom he is pleased. Because he sees in the church, he sees in you, as you believe him, the heart of his son, Jesus. And he 
is pleased. Let us pray. Lord our God, how foolish we are to judge by what we see, to judge by mere appearances. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have revealed Jesus, your Son, to us. And help us to see him in all his glory and power and grace. To see him, your anointed one, once crucified, now risen and living eternally at your right hand and ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords. O Lord, help us to see him to follow him, to proclaim his gospel, to sing your praise, and then watch as Satan and his demons and all our enemies retreat. O Lord, we thank you that in you we have the victory and that through Jesus, your Son, With us, you are well pleased. Amen.